Escape velocity. Feels good to be back on the air. That was it. That was yet another extended pause. Well, gap. I was away. I you wasn't were, here. What was, were, what that was an extended. To do? That get was on, an extended tour for you. So yeah, I'm not going to get on Skype and record a while podcast. in the outback. While in the outback, hunting wallabies, riding a dingo. So yeah, that was. A, you know what? But if fuck them, who cares? Fuck who? The people who were mad. Nobody was mad. Nobody gave a shit. Someone's mad. Right now, as we record this, someone's mad. I'm mad that we're recording this. People who donate money might be mad. They might feel entitled. Anyway, so you're away on tour. I was in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Uh, tell me the interesting things about Australia. You had... Tell me about this, because I, w- I was curious when I saw some of these tweets. This Rise Refugee. Yes. They came out to some of your shows. Yeah. Tell me, what is this organization? What do it they do? It is an organization composed of ex-detainees refugees asylum seekers okay that uh try to get the word out about how asylum seekers refugees and detainees people caught up in the the immigration infrastructure the detention system of australia right in particular are maltreated mistreated untreated many times before we played the song Night Letters, Todd would make the point, you know, if something ever goes south here in Australia and you have to go somewhere, let's hope people help you and don't just throw you in a fucking detention center. And right. that's exactly that's exactly the way I see the whole thing. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to come around. It's going to come around for your people. If you're the detainers right now, someday your people will be the detainees. And you'll wish that there were some sort of precedent set where you weren't treated like human garbage. And this RISE organization is made up, is it right? They're made up entirely of people who have have experience in this system. In, they, in, they have in been some, detainees or they are it's immigrants to Australia that have been through some of that. The organization is directed by people right. with, with those experiences and probably part of their human infrastructure are sympathetic people who haven't been through the system but yeah. now witness it. Even if you just think about like people who live in coastal cities in North America, what do they have like two or three decades before there's real potential for entire cities, highly populated cities to be completely unlivable due to sea level rise. Yeah. You ain't coming here, motherfuckers. Winnipeg is putting up a wall. We're like, we're kind of high and dry. Well, we're not high, but we are generally, I guess we might end up with like some tornadoes. Oh, we're not even dry. We built our fucking city in a floodplain. It's idiotic. But, sea level rise likely won't affect that floodplain it's more that's more inland flooding until the torrential downpours come and yeah and it's all that's over right. for Winnipeg and we're all heading up north and 
asking the people on the reserves if we can come live there and can you feed us? And they'll be yeah. like, fuck you, <laughs> rightfully. Sea Shepherd, you also, you guys had Sea Shepherd out? Sea Shepherd was out to, I think, every show there. Is that, that, that's that, kind of like a base for them, Australia? That's it where is they a keep base. their ships or yeah. what? It's, that's one crazy thing about Australia, man. The, the public support for Sea Shepherd is unreal. Really? Yeah. Every five cars going down the highway has a Sea Shepherd sticker on it. Wow. You walk through the airport, fucking every 16th person has a Sea Shepherd badge on their goddamn jacket or something. It's crazy. Widespread public support. The total opposite of Canada, where there's widespread public hostility. And um, they invited us to come check out uh, the fleet that was in dock. And everybody got to go except for me. Oh. Yeah. What? They didn't like you? They didn't like me. Yeah. No, I uh, I had some huge technical difficulties in the first two days and spent about eight hours walking the streets looking for parts, trying to fix some guitar stuff while everybody else was gallivanting gallivanting around the decks of the sea shepherd eating food enjoying the sun and you were combing through boxes of used pedal parts and oh yeah pedal parts (laughs) did you fix it did you get it all sorted out i fixed it i fixed it hero you are a hero yeah i'm a hero so yeah australia that's what we did that's where i was that's why there was no episode sort of yeah, you said you were gonna you were gonna find an interview when you were over there. There was many people who could have been interviewed. Yeah, and uh, I I'm not capable of doing anything on my own. <laughs> I've heard through the grapevine that there's at least one thing that you're capable of doing on your own. <laughs> you were on the other side of the grapevine that day. <laughs> that wasn't a grapevine. Those weren't grapes. Well, that sounds like a that sounds like a a splendid time. Oh, other was, side of the world. It was a splendid time down there. It Just was, pure fun. No it's a very strange. It's a very strange job that you have. No, no kidding. Yeah. Sorry. Plus, there's the whole band thing. I suppose we should touch each other. No, no, Chris. No, ourselves. I suppose we should touch on this recent Chris Hedges fracas, mm. which has bubbled up into the blogosphere as right. of late. Right. Plagiarism. Plagiarism charges. I'm referring to an article that came out on uh, the New Republic website by Christopher Ketchum. Titled, The Troubling Case of Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Winner, Lefty Hero, Plagiarist. Mm -hmm. And this is a piece wherein he outlines what he purports to be serious instances of plagiarism. Yeah, let's make a long story short here. Yeah. How many instances were there? Like six, seven? Uh, I think think five or six. That that were pretty, that is definitely lifted from that piece of writing. Yeah, yeah, it seems obvious that... Uh, so five excerpts, five or six excerpts that yeah. were clearly lifted or... The most the most serious of which is the, the charges, which are the least founded charges about the chapter in Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, about Camden, New Jersey, which we had actually discussed mm-hmm. 
on episode one of this show. Right. Uh, where the charges are that there was reporting done by the Philadelphia Inquirer where Chris Hedges apparently lifted large portions of that in some previous essay incarnation of that chapter before it got turned into the book. But no one will go on record saying why they think this is the case or showing the original right. manuscript There's that no was evidence. apparently lifted. There's no evidence. Right. It's just kind of hearsay. Whereas the other pieces which are seem far, to me, less severe are much more demonstrable cases of of plagiarism right and putting it into perspective it's five excerpts in a body of work that includes probably 10 books how many articles how many speeches hundreds yeah yeah. but but i think the the academic and writerly community i guess folks in that world seem to be taking this right even many allies of chris hedges people who are longtime supporters of his work are saying like Ooh, this is not good. This is really bad. Really? It's yeah. weird. It doesn't seem that big of a deal to me. No, I don't get it either. But I think part of that is because we're not, that's not our world. To me, I'm like, oh, it looks like he was, looks like he was being kind of lazy. Yeah. You know, being a little, maybe a little bit entitled. Yeah. Do what people, he can use. Do, and then. Do people really think Chris Hedges thought he was going to get away with plagiarizing a famous Ernest Hemingway quote? To me, the piece, which I guess apparently was rejected by this guy had been shopping this article around mm-hmm. and it was rejected by two other prominent uh, online magazines previously. I think because it reads a little bit more like a hit piece than it does in like a, an earnest investigation in, you know, trying to do justice for the people who are wronged, you know? Um, and I think that you have to consider the target of the, you know, cause I think, I mean, who doesn't, who, what author, or what person who is as prolific as Hedges doesn't have amongst their repertoire something that examples. looks like something that looks like somebody else's writing, or so, something that where they directly sourced it somewhere and then forgot or right. or forgot the footnote, lost in the shuffle that gets inappropriately attributed. I mean, you, you had talked about this before. How well, yeah, in writing, you end up with all this. You have notebooks, notebooks full of quotes that you've written that you've lifted from other books that had a profound effect on you and after pages and pages and pages and pages you forget where some of these things these scratches in your notebook came from yeah it, that's very possible it's, it's also sloppy and unprofessional yeah like me but chris edges shouldn't be sloppy and unprofessional so it is a problem in that sense yeah but in terms of it being a conscious thing i don't know every i said to you the other day i think if you took any progressively political writer who's written about criticizing capitalism or the world as it is now, if you went through all of their work, you would find things that appear appear to be directly lifted from Chomsky. Yeah. There's no doubt about it in my mind. And in fact, when this came up, just as a just as a little experiment, I, I looked up Chris Ketchum, found the first article I could. This, he, this is the author, of the, the author of the article in question. Yeah, the author calling Chris Hedges a plagiarist. Yeah. Looked up his first article that I could find. And then I just skimmed through some of the claims he was making, you know, an article about wolves. And he had a part where he was going through the various words for wolf in European dialects and the meanings over time. And I threw that particular sentence into a search engine and it came up with an article that had been written in 1998 and was submitted to some Swiss academic journal. And to me, it seemed clear Chris Ketchum had gotten this particular paragraph 
from this article. Yeah. There was no attribution. Just shuffled, shuffled the words a little bit. Yeah. And there was no attribution in his work for it. It was clear. He, I mean, it was, it was clear and it came up in the Google search first. So, yeah. you know, that shows you that probably that's where he got it from. But is he a plagiarist now? Yeah. Cause it just seems like, isn't that how a lot of writing happens? You have an overarching idea for yeah. a piece of work, and then you are you are filling in certain pieces that you need to you research you need to source facts. You do research, you and you put those facts together. You stream them together. You write them in your own words, and then clearly, Chris Ketchum didn't think it was that important to footnote that and yeah. attribute the work to the Swiss writer who made it. Which is exactly what you find. You know, I mean, the article he mentions a Hedges article where he clearly source data from a piece by Naomi Klein and he's citing these facts and figures that she's using about climate change in the piece and it's that exact thing he's like she found these facts and figures here I'm going to use those facts and figures in my piece you know and after it had been pointed out they added a citation saying that that's where the article had come from but it just seems like there's I mean writing is filled with this you know you're sourcing your facts I think we're going to have to have some writerly people give us some feedback about this because at the moment, to me, this is the equivalent of the slew foot in hockey where players understand that it's a dirty play. But if my mom watches a game and sees me cheering on two guys punching each other in the face 200 times and then sees me get angry at somebody slew footing another guy, which is taking their skates out from underneath them with your skate... She thinks I'm fucking insane. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a minor matter in terms of everything else going on in the world. Yeah, or within that realm, you know, within that within that discipline. Yeah, and this and so that's why I don't get this idea that you know he's that it's over. He's, yeah, he's blown his reputation. Yeah, because of these. Like, it doesn't. I mean, have you ever read his books? Like, look at the his fucking output. It's not. I don't think his. Yeah, people are acting like he has never had a novel thought. Yeah. And I guess maybe he hasn't because there's no such thing as a novel thought. And any writer you sit down and... Just had one. Just had one. For a novel? Any writer you sit down, you sit down with their work and pour through it over all their books, you're going to find shit like this. It just, it stands to reason. To me, it seems more like a technicality than any sort of substantive Mm -hmm. issue that you can have with someone. It's a no-no, a faux pas within that scene. Yeah. I mean... In, in the scene I belong to, the washed up punk rock music scene, we've been plagiarized endlessly over the past 20 years, mm-hmm. as have many other bands. Yeah. And nobody fucking worries about it. And likely as you have done to other bands. And likely as we've done. But yeah. it's just the, the, the most I can muster when I hear something that is clearly from a propaganda record in somebody else's work is... Outrage! Bemusement, I was thinking. Oh, okay. And that's about it. So I don't know. I guess writers... Tell us. We want to know. Why is this a big deal? Or don't, but... It's sloppy. Tell us why it's something more than sloppy. Yeah. And and possibly a minor case of being unprofessional. But And, and is, is Chris Hedges the only guy to blame in this? Or are there editors to blame? Like, mm-hmm. shouldn't they have their shit together? Yeah. They, they're the ones who actually put the fucking book together. He just throws something on a piece of paper and hands it to them. <laughs> And this one I shall call The End of Time by Chris Hedges. Yeah, another baby bathwater fucking incident. Wouldn't happen if this if there wasn't a market at these websites for just getting the most oh, sensational article that yeah. could 
get the the most amount of clicks to generate the most amount of ad dollars we should start a website where all we do is promote baseless claims slander against each other we have competition to see who can get more clicks you're gonna win have you heard of twitter um, have you heard of social media? I've been on social media. I've I've looked at it. I send strangers pictures of my penis on there. Mm. Uh, but they won't let me use it anymore. Because the JPEGs are too small. Right. It's just the JPEG. The uh, compression was too high. They couldn't find a pixel small enough for the photo. <laughs> One interesting thing I've discovered through social media is pornography. And the other thing is it's sort of a unique way to potentially access people you wouldn't normally have access to. In some case, people of some renown Mm -hmm. who are at the same time are from a different walk of life and you have assumptions about them that can be proven either correct or wrong via social media because you actually get to engage with them. Right. So it's one of the kind of interesting, I mean, it destroys the mystique of some people whatever that's worth that's what happened to me with chris from propaganda oh he's just a regular guy he's just a regular guy he sits in his basement i was kind of disappointed it Does destroyed nothing. his mystique um it's a real asshole but i recently derek had a dm exchange a direct message exchange okay i won't mention this person's name but okay. uh this is a professional athlete in a sport that i really love and this person played for a team that i'm really interested in badminton and uh, uh, horse racing very shockingly to me we had a interesting discussion about global food security slash distribution slash justice but i bring this up because we talked about this person consumes meat yes but has has questions about cruelty and the animal agricultural industries in terms of supporting a continually growing global population of people how vegetarianism or veganism or plant-based nutrition plays into that. Right. Are there instances of subsistence that are acceptable to animal rights advocates? Is subsistence a model for a growing population? Mm-hmm. You know, just interesting thought experiments. Yeah. yeah. And, and I conceded that I think the future, while I think it will by necessity be more plant-based if we're to sustain 7 billion people, we've talked about this before, Yeah, that probably synthetic meat or so-called lab cultured meat yep. is going to be part of the part of the scene if we want to sustain the population and if we're interested in retaining a world that resembles the society mm-hmm. that it current that we currently have at all right. which i don't know if i am two two big ifs yeah, yeah. but you upped the ante uh this morning by sending me an article that goes even farther than lab cultured meats. That's right, Chris. This is an article that I sent you about Soylent. This is a piece in Al Jazeera called Let's Embrace the End of Food. And I think Soylent is probably a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek name referencing Soylent Green, Green, the movie and book or whatever. I don't know. I've never even, I've never, I have no idea. I've never read or seen it. Uh, Charlton Heston's in it. Charlton Heston, that's right. And it ends with him, Soylent Green is made of people or something like that. Because the, the food that they deliver to the people is ground up other people. I think so. Yeah. yeah. This is a, I'll quote from the article here. It is a powdered meal replacement. It's developed by Robert Reinhardt, an electrical engineer turned amateur biochemist. 
And the product is something like Ensure on steroids, containing 35 essential nutrients in one tiny pouch. Mix it with water and an oil blend, and you have not just a substitute for a single meal, but a cocktail you could live on for all eternity. Yeah. Out of the gates, as somebody who actually has had those sort of powdered meal replacement things from time to time, vegan ones, of course, out of the gates, this just seems not too cool. You're not super excited about it? No. There's something There's something inhuman about yes. it. Yes. Yeah. There's something, it feels dehumanizing. But the reason I wanted to talk about this is because it's more partially, actually, I came to this article because Lee Phillips, who we mm-hmm. had on the show last episode talking yep. about GMOs, he had tweeted a link to this. And I think it's related to this idea of using technology to change how and what we eat basically and hopefully with an eye to adapting positively to negative changes in the world you know or changes that just require us to adapt like population rise climate change etc it's a reasonably interesting read for everyone because mm-hmm. it, it this is obviously an extreme this is not something that's happening anytime soon and it's a little it's a little more of a thought experiment than something that might even realistically happen though i don't I know i think it to me it sounded like it is i mean it's not a cheerleading piece but it sounded like this technology is moving ahead like they, well, they the have, guy they has have, created it the yeah, guy's created it, it i just it's a, it, it will be a hard sell for the so, world it sort of will and it sort of won't so just to, to summarize he basically goes through he's saying a technology like this again re- relating it back to the gmo discussion in the last episode this technology could easily be used to terrible ends yes by capitalism you know in the way he talks about how oh this could put an end to lunch breaks lunch breaks at work you know it can be used as an an oppressive tool to take yet more extract more profit extract extract more profit and extract communal experiences from people's lives which is how a lot of people use food the experience of preparing and well, you don't want to sit, you don't want to go to a potluck where there's four bowls of powder you can choose from. Everybody bring two uh, pouches of soylent, please. And we'll put them in different colored bowls. So, but simultaneously, he talks about how th- there can be a more egalitarian or liberatory right. aspect to it in terms of how still women are predominantly the ones who end up being responsible for feeding families for being in charge of meal preparation all the time that that takes the extra stress it puts on the people who are in this role which is predominantly women and he also talks about how agriculture as we know it it makes food expensive uh makes it environmentally inefficient compared Mm -hmm. to food technology like this and how it can be used to solve some of the issues of world hunger in terms of how i mean there's, there's enough food in the world right now to feed everybody, and the problem is essentially capitalism, distribution of food. Who has access to that distribution and what countries are forced to grow what for who mm-hmm. is, is the main problem. But something like this can be very easily and cheaply distributed. Um, right. But, but you then you also, there's the danger of then creating class systems of the food that people eat and also just markets so mar- and market value oh they need they need soylent in country x more than they need it here hmm, maybe we can get a few more cents out yeah. of the, you know capitalism isn't going to let this solve anything no so it's it's once again a band-aid a uh, band-aid solution yes band-aid solution if that if that but at, at the same time 
I'm somebody who who is a prisoner of convenient society and and as someone who has loved packaged processed food most of his life and for me to be suspicious of this off the bat does make it seem like a hard sell but is it is a nutrient dense powder meal replacement a harder sell than lab cultured meat or a plant-based diet i don't know i think it might be an easier sell i think people who eat meat aren't sure they want to eat lab they they don't they think that's weird yeah. which is crazy that they think it's weird because eating meat that came from a filthy imprisoned tortured mm-hmm. animal is delicious way, way weirder than eating something that was cultured in a clean mm-hmm. brightly lit lab suffering free suffering free well except for all the people who have to work there yeah or the idea that we're going to have to shift by adaptational necessity to a plant-based global diet that's a that's going to be a tough sell for most of the west anyways so i don't know though man powdered powdered meal I guess, but people already do it. People eat Insure. People eat yeah. Metamucil. People eat fucking Vega, like yeah. it's going out of style. People do it already. They skip one meal a day and just drink this powdered shit. So they already are doing it. Yeah. So I think it, it's actually probably not to maybe us because we're already vegan. Yeah. And the other things just seem reasonable. Plant-based mm-hmm. nutrition and lab-generated meat seems like yeah, just fucking do that. Yeah. We're done. But I think for most people, the meal replacement stuff is probably an easier sell. It's funny how reading this, my reaction to this made me think a little bit differently about my reaction to our discussion about GMOs with with Lee last episode. Because, you know, in that case, he's talking about, say, for example, golden rice. And he's like, yes, golden rice will not solve the problem of poverty in the third world, but it could dramatically improve the lives of the people who can only afford to buy rice for now, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, that seems very reasonable. But by the same token, you you can say this Soylent this could fulfill the nutritional requirements of huge swaths of people who are grossly undernourished and dying in the developing world. Sure, it doesn't solve the problem of poverty or capitalism, but it could let all those people actually survive. Maybe. But if they... But if my, it, by my... I have more of a visceral reaction to this, thinking you might be growing all the food that you're exporting so we can eat really delicious tasty real food but then we'll just ship you over this powder so you can fulfill your nutritional requirements it's it's yeah it's it's deeply disturbing it's it's sort of insult sort of insulting it is it's another colonial assumption you know another imposition on yeah. their on their now destroyed culture mm-hmm. you know just let's it's the ultimate expression of it it's no longer we're going to take your traditional means of growing food have you do it and export it to our country? It's like, you're not doing that anymore. Yeah. You're eating, here's some packets of food. Like, look, here's a little package, just like a Kool-Aid packet. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's the Not wall. even their traditional kind of food. We're going to stop you from growing your traditional food. We're going to make you grow a cash crop yeah. because your fucking government owes money to the IMF. You're going to export all that food and then we're going to do this. Yeah, it's the Walmart of solutions. Yeah. Then again, I mean, do you want the population that exists to survive or not? So everything that has happened till now has happened. Do we help people in general survive what we've wrought on yeah. this earth? Or do we just leave them to die in hunger? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is disturbing. Disturbing and interesting. We already have it. I mean, Get we, some Soylent for lunch. Sorry to interrupt and go back, but 
we already have versions of this. It's called vitamins. People don't eat proper food and they know it. So they take vitamins, which apparently don't do anything are actually bad for you. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's already, the president is already there. Yeah. I guess that's, that's the root idea. They're like, I'm just going to eat fucking uh, fucking cheeseburgers, yeah. which contain zero nutritional value. I don't want to a multivitamin. I don't want to grow kale and eat it in my backyard. So I'll take this super green bottle yeah. of pills from Willie's store and pay 80 bucks for them and eat them in there. I've had my serving of greens for the week. Yeah. It's already happening. Fuck. Fuck everybody, including myself. With pleasure. Go kill ourselves, everyone. What's the point? What's the point? We've ruined it. We've ruined this fucking planet. <sighs> so speaking of GMOs, we did get some feedback from last episode. Oh, great. We we got quite a bit of feedback, but not, not all of it was necessarily warrants uh, talking about. You can go to the... We've like we had a record number of comments. Oh yeah, last episode thirty-seven comments. Wow, right now. thirty-six from Derek. <laughs> Great Joe, good job, <laughs> nice one. Okay, so first we got Josh Cornell on Facebook. He had a he had a lengthy, uh, perhaps a touch angry, right? Multiple comment reaction to yep. the interview. I think most of it is not really worth commenting on because I think he was he was not actually reacting to what Lee was saying. In, some, what, in, in what, some instances. In most instances. Mm. He was reacting to what he thought Lee was saying meant. People have this reaction when you talk about an, a, a subject which That's all carries emotional fervor with people. Right. So because he was not saying that GMOs are the, the spawn of all evil, then he, he thinks that Lee was saying that Monsanto was good. Right. But he did make, he make one point which I thought was worth addressing because it was actually interesting to me when I looked it up to find out whether he was actually right. Right. Lee made one small comment that one of the issues with organic farming is that it takes more land and that that can lead to greater carbon emissions. And Josh in his Facebook comment said, this is bullshit. Another false claim from Monsanto that he has regurgitated. Mm -hmm. But I actually looked that up and uh, there was actually a, Oxford University meta-analysis study mm -hmm. that looked at 71 peer-reviewed studies regarding different farming practices and environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. And overall, it showed, as you might expect, that organic farming had much lower environmental impact overall right. than conventional farming, yep. but that on average, it requires 84% more land right. to grow the same amount of food. So I don't I'm pretty sure that's not a Monsanto. Uh, why is it eighty? Why eighty four percent? What is that? How does that happen? Like, why is it that much? Yeah. Why is there? Why does it need more land? I will send you the link to the Wikipedia article, which discusses <laughs> the meta analysis. Okay. Um, Anyways, but I thought that was worth worth addressing because I guess it's easy to say that oh, this is bullshit. It's just another false claim from Monsanto. But if you don't have anything to back up, that's that's actually the case. We have to deal in reality as much as possible. Yeah. That's not telling me nothing, though. A Wikipedia article about 84. It doesn't seem right. Seems like Monsanto would say that. Maybe Monsanto secretly runs... Wikipedia. Uh, Oxford University and all 71 peer-reviewed studies, which they looked at. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll look it up, I guess, and then I'll still not know what the fuck's going on. I thought the most interesting bit of feedback, though, Chris, was from Emperor Reagan commenting on our website. This is what he had to say. 
get yourself a coffee. Okay. Uh-oh. The Union of Concerned Scientists position is nuanced and detailed. I guess that's why it is easily dismissed. It's neither a position that all GM is bad, nor is it a position that all technology is good, and all novelty represents an advance of some sort. It is very unsatisfying. Hmm. I think comparing skepticism about climate change to skepticism about GM is spurious. Consensus in itself doesn't mean much. Researchers and scientific publications are subject to the same cognitive biases as everyone else. The choice in what research is proposed, what gets funded, what results get put into papers, and what papers are published are all places where bias enters into the practice of science. Personally, I trust pharmaceutical research expounding on the virtues of some new drug far less than research that details the counterintuitive mechanism that explains the behavior of a photon. What makes climate change particularly convincing is that the science of climate change isn't directly transferable into commercial products, and it has stood up against a concerted effort of political and commercial interests to discredit it. It runs in direct conflict to the economic system that dominates the landscape and is counterintuitive, which underlies many of the arguments people try to use against it, and yet it stands. On the other hand, there are some troubling issues that make me skeptical in regards to the introduction and expansion of GM in agriculture. Much of the GM research is out of or funded by the companies that are seeking to commercialize products. Regulatory capture, like Monsanto-affiliated scientists sitting on the board determining the fate of a Monsanto product in the U.S., where most of the research used to determine that fate is already provided by said company, renders regulatory oversight a stamp of approval rather than a skeptical body. Some of the companies involved are known bad actors, engaged in behavior everywhere from concealing negative results to lobbying to influence laws and use trade agreements to force their products on reluctant populations. One final point about the nuclear example, somewhere between the extremes of nuclear medicine, which is a good application where the benefit outweighs the downside and risk, and the nuclear bomb, obviously a bad application, you had things like commercial x-ray machines for checking shoe fit which is an application with little discernible benefit other than selling expensive technology, but carried a downside and risk. One need not be either a technophile or a technophobe, but could elevate the applications on a case-by-case basis. Seems like a reasonable That person seems relatively smart compared to me. And me. Some good perspective there. Mm -hmm. And perhaps a little more more skeptical than I felt at the end of uh, last month's episode. Mm. So I wanted to include that in there for some balance good yeah thanks for the feedback people who are smarter than us and for the people who are dumber than us please write in so we can have something to laugh at instead of feeling bad about ourselves and thereby drinking ourselves into a stupor and acting out like assholes in public hey should we do that so it's been a while since we've talked about rob ford on the show Good. I think it's time to reprise that conversation. Oh, no. Must we? Lest our listeners forget Rob Ford. He's the... Is he still the mayor? I think he's still the mayor. He is so with, still... With just a rescinded emergency powers. powers. Right. So, currently the mayor of Toronto in abstentia. Is he still... Like, is he... I don't even know what's happening. I think he's in rehab. Yeah. And coming back right after the Pride Parade is done. <laughs> That's true, apparently. Really? Yeah, the day after the Pride is done. <laughs> wow. So this is headline-making mayor of Toronto over the last year or so. Crack, his, smoking, homophobic, yes, misogynist, alcoholic, freak, yeah, obnoxious motherfucker. That's a good summary. We had discussed this briefly last year when 
when the revelations first came out that he indeed smoked crack multiple times while mayor of Toronto. But the reason I bring this up again is because Dr. Gabor Mate, Mm -hmm. he is a somewhat, I think, Mm world-renowned therapist, I guess. He focuses on addiction and how... And trauma. And trauma, all sorts of trauma. He does a lot of work in uh, the downtown east side in Vancouver. Which if, if you've ever been there, you see the walking trauma that are yeah. the addicts that I have never seen of that ilk in any other city I've ever been to. It's crazy. It's horrifying. Yeah. Or it was when I last was there 10 years ago. Oh, now it's just a bunch of Starbucks. Oh, good. So he's been working with, uh, with addicts in the downtown east side for many, many years. And he does lectures, conferences, and uh, he's written some books and... So he talks about addiction and trauma and uh, about how childhood trauma is, according to him, he says he's never dealt with someone who is dealing with addiction Addiction. issues, who has not had a root childhood trauma, either sexual abuse or neglect or, you know, some kind of troubled childhood that is at the root of it all. It's very interesting. So he, he wrote this piece just the other day about Rob Ford, which kind of gave me a little bit of pause mm-hmm. called can Rob Ford conquer his pain and become an inspiration seems unlikely frankly yeah it seems unlikely yeah but I just want to read these opening yeah. paragraphs because they're I think they drive the, the point home the signs of trauma have been unmistakable for years the obesity the bombast the bellicose defensiveness the need to project a larger than life persona as compensation for low self-esteem And then more recently, reports of self-soothing with substances like cocaine and alcohol, followed by denial, failed commitments to sober up, more denial, and finally, treatment for addiction. A common personal trajectory become public because the anti-hero is the mayor of Canada's largest city. In the Jerry Springer culture of North America, this man becomes a laughingstock, his plight a fodder for cheap laugh comedians and scandal-mongering commentators. The most telling aspect of the Rob Ford saga has been the absence of empathy towards a human being who is suffering and clearly has suffered all his life. Underneath Ford's paper-thin hubris and achingly evident desperation to be liked is the pain of a child who was mistreated or, at the very least, deprived of acceptance and emotional nurture. We come to soothe ourselves through substances, food, or addicted behaviors when, as young children, we were hurt and not soothed. There are no exceptions. Ford's public drama may have been self-authored, but the distress driving it was inflicted before he had any choice in the matter. Addiction is an attempt not to feel that distress. So I think it's poignant to me. Yeah, it's all true. It's it's something I think I've thought about it from the beginning. Once the floodgates were even even before the crack scandal came out, all this shit about his weight. You know, it was like, uh, come on, people. Like, there's yeah. he can't help that. Like in a I don't really dig that kind no. of thing anymore, attacking someone because of the way they the way they look. Yeah. Having indulged in that in the past. But this all makes sense. It all totally makes sense. But it's it's very difficult to enact it when somebody has so much power and uses that power to hurt so many other people. Yeah. It's hard to get people, understandably, to engage their sympathy. For a cartoon character like Rob Ford, yeah, who is embarrassing an entire city possibly a country species species and at the same time antagonizing anybody with a progressive worldview yeah it's going to be very very difficult for people to give a shit yeah about this guy 
But it's all true. Yeah, of course that's true. Yeah. Every time that I feel my sympathy rising a little bit for him, you know, the more I think about it, then it's like he just comes out and does some other fucking thing. Yeah. Where I'm just like, Jesus Christ, man, what the fuck? Yeah. But I think it's really important to have, this was published in the Toronto Star or something, this, this editorial. And I think that's a really positive thing because people like Gabor Mate have to be out there reminding us. Everybody has some pain they're dealing with. Some people who are dealing with that pain happen to be conservatives who are in positions of power, which I is, guess. Which would probably, I mean, this is a psychological profile perhaps of many, if not most conservatives. It could be. It could be, yeah. So it's very hard to, to keep that in mind it, and his behavior cannot be excused, but it has to be understood I think. And this is like the root of how many things that we deal with in fucking human society have traumas like this at the root of them, you know? Mm -hmm. So what Derek is saying is uh, next election, vote Rob Ford (laughs) to show him that you, you will care and nurture, (laughs) nurture him. (laughs) The affirmation of the voters will cure his addiction. Anyway, you should check that. We'll have the link to that editorial in the show notes. And I would Highly recommend people check out Dr. Gabor Mate's work. He's got a bunch of videos and books and stuff on his website. Poor little Rob Ford. Derek, what time is it? It's time for Kickstarter Corner, Chris. Kickstarter Corner? Holy shit! So this episode on Kickstarter Corner, we are going to promote a project of a past Escape Velocity Radio guest, a friend of Escape Velocity Radio, Will Potter. Will Potter. Yeah. He has this project called Drone on the Farm, an aerial expose. It is some crazy motherfucking shit. This is pretty fucking cool. I have imagine, to say. Imagine, like, roll back time to 1990. If I could turn back time. If I could find a way... If, Derek, yes, you turned back time and went back to, say, 1996, imagine somebody telling you that they wanted to do this project. You'd say, look, you fucking idiot. Get the fuck out of my face. Nark! It'd be crazy. Yeah, it is. So Describe it to the people who don't know. It's not, you know, it's not even crazy now today. Well, it's crazy. It is crazy, but it, it's almost that drones have become mundane already. Yeah, they are slowly working their way into everyday apparently already like mining companies are buying fleets of drones to surveil and secure their Hmm. mining sites against protesters and indigenous populations and labor unrest it's crazy well our pal will potter has turned this technology to novel service yeah so this is this is what he proposes to do we'll put a we'll put a link in the show notes obviously because the show notes the show notes obviously because the url is too long to give you here but with this Kickstarter project, as we speak, it is already fully pledged. Yeah. But he has set some stretch goals. Yeah, to, now he wants an aircraft carrier. <laughs> now he wants to buy an F-16. That'd be cool. I'd just crash it into the factory farm. Just one factory farm. Well, totally worth it. So this is what he, he intends to do with this drone. He's going to lawfully document factory farms in multiple states using aerial drone photography. How is that lawful? Um, I think that... How can you fly a drone over somebody's property? This is also new. There aren't laws against it. That's that's why it's lawful. You know what we should have done back in the 90s? 
flown a hot air balloon over these places. He will create a short documentary about factory farms and the egg gag controversy using aerial drone footage and interviews with whistleblowers. He will publish an ebook that combines these photographs with in-depth investigative reporting on factory farms and ag gag legislation. He will use the investigation to contribute to public debate about ag gag laws internationally. He will brief media and policymakers about the findings of his investigation. And then he will share what he has learned about using drones for reporting with other journalists and professional journalism associations. Hmm. So this is really fucking cool, I think. Yeah. Leave it to Will to come up with a brilliant idea for a yeah. project like this. Uh, you remember, it's a bit of a tangent, but do you remember in the mid-90s when you and I were both involved with the animal rights group? No, I was not. And at one point... No, I didn't. I didn't do anything. At one point, we found these piles of, of dead pigs in the yards. In the rendering the, yard. In the rendering yard. Yes. And it was just... they were They were there for like a morning, and someone had tipped off the organization that this was happening and they were all downed pigs mm-hmm. uh, that died in transport and it was just I mean it was horrific it was it was like a hill thanks for reminding me of that I had think I had blocked it out of my mind it was terrible it was fucking terrible now I can see it great but it's stuff like that that nor I mean you know that's a that's like a small beans operation in you know in St. Boniface in Winnipeg that's mm-hmm. like at a time when they're thinking, oh, no one's looking, no one cares. Things are very different now. So I think part of the idea is who knows what he's going to find. It could be environmental runoff. It could be downed animals or mm-hmm. unsanitary conditions. I'm not sure. Check it out. Link in the show notes. Give him a few bucks. And worst case scenario, uh, he doesn't find anything. He straps some explosives to that fucking drone and he flies it into the freedom t- lights in New York City. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to episode 21 of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by us. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us... I'm not even going to say leave us a voicemail on Skype anymore because no one ever does it. I will. I am officially excising this line no. from the outro. I'll phone it. To join the discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also... You can also... You can also... You, you go. You can also follow, follow us. On, <laughs> you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you like the show, and really, you don't, and want to support us with your dollars, you can donate on our website, and then next month find out we didn't even bother to make another episode. Hey, speaking of money, don't forget to come see. Propagandy uh, In August On tour with War on Women And Reviver Who you're hearing right now In both of your ears Toronto, August 10th Toronto, August 11th Ottawa, August 12th Montreal, August 13th And so on and so on Just go check our website We're going to a lot of cities Boston, Baltimore, New York Grand Rapids, Chicago That's not very many cities 